This is Talk RL Podcast. All reinforcement learning, all the time. Interviews with brilliant folks from across the world of RL. I'm your host, Robin Chohan. Antoine Buffin is a researcher at the German Aerospace Center in Munich, working in the Institute of Robotics and Mechatronics. His research involves using machine learning for controlling real robots because he says simulation's not enough. With a particular interest in reinforcement learning, he will start his PhD soon. Welcome, Antonin. Thank you for having us here, Robin. <laughs> and Ashley Hill is doing his PhD on improving control algorithms using machine learning for real-time gain tuning. He works with neuroevolution, genetic algorithms, and RL applied to mobile robots. Ashley holds a master's degree in machine learning and a bachelor's in computer science from the Université Paris-Saclay. Thank you for joining us, Ashley. Thank you for having us. So I wonder if we could start by hearing uh, a little bit about what you do uh, and your work. Uh, Antonin. So um, currently I'm working with the David robot, which is so an elastic robot with uh, viable stiffness. And I'm working on exciting oscillation with uh, using nonlinear modes. And does that involve uh, some RL? Um, not yet. Mostly it involves uh, black box optimization and also um, using a bit of uh, dimension reduction using autoencoders. What about you, Ashley? Uh, I'm working on uh, so real-time gain tuning for robotic controllers. Uh, the main idea is instead of using uh, reinforcement learning completely on the robot, we keep uh, some of the state-of-the-art controllers that exist and tune them using uh, machine learning. So we be it either reinforcement learning or optimization or just neuroevolution. So I originally reached out to you both because I'm a, a fan of your stable baselines uh, work. So I wanted to, to, to get into that. The, you're the primary authors of, of this uh, fork of OpenAI baselines. And last I checked, there's actually 2,700 forks of OpenAI AI baselines. But this one is quite special. Um, it's got a number of great features, uh, awesome documentation. It's, the code is so clean and, and consistent and hackable. Um, you added more algorithms than what they have in the o OpenAI version, uh, TensorBoard supports, um, and I'm sure a bunch of other things. So it's it's I think it's I think it's a fantastic framework. I've used it myself. It's been great to work with. So I, I just want to thank you both, first of all, for for doing this and sharing it openly. Well, thank you for using it then. Um, actually, can you tell us, like, from your point of view, how did you come to work on this? framework and, and to work with Antonin on it? Well, initially I ended up um, being a side project of uh, the internship uh, that I did at uh, Linsta. Uh, the project was uh, state representation learning. The issues we were having is I had to deal with reinforcement learning part of this project, uh, along with Antonin. Uh, we were using OpenAI baselines at the time, and we kept on trying to add hacks and fixes to OpenAI because uh, we had, I think, at the end, 10 different um, code-breaking issues with this code. And at one point, if I remember correctly, they reintroduced the bug they fixed in, uh, in DeepQN. And uh, they actually ignored the comment above saying, do not delete this line, otherwise saving uh, DeepQN models will break. And it broke. So at this point, with Antonin, we decided, let's fork uh, uh, OpenAI baselines. Let's call it stable baselines. And actually, you know, actually fix the issues we found because OpenAI won't, uh, were not actually listening to our uh, to our pull requests and to our issues on GitHub. Yeah, that, that's the main main story. The main story is we, we started at first patching the codes in our own 
uh, repo and at some points we have we had too much patches and it keep broke uh, breaking when we pulled the original repo so we wanted to to have something more stable uh, to work with so that that's how, how it started and then at some point during refactoring uh, Ashley showed me some nice feature he, he came up with with a nice scikit learn like syntax and I found it very cool so I dedicated more, more time to that and I think it took us like two months to refactor everything. Yeah, about that. So first month was about documenting, um, having a common code style for everything. And then the next month was about uh, refactoring and having a common API for all the models. Uh, yeah, that was two months of hard work. How did you guys split this work between you? Oof. Initially, it started off, I think, as uh, Anton asking me to make a fork, and uh, that's why it's under uh, my GitHub page, to make a fork and just fix the patches. And I think I got uh, slightly zealous and started to add a lot of fixes, a lot more fixes than initially planned. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, the way we started to work is Ashley was doing all the refactoring, and I was more working on the documentation. And when Ashley was adding new features or new fixes, I was trying to break the code and I was coming to him showing that it broke and then he fixed uh, the things again until we had something working. <laughs> that was mostly it, yeah. Him, him working at first on refactoring and me working on documenting and trying to break his code. So you guys added uh, more algorithms than the original OpenAI baselines code has. Um, I think that's TD3 and SAC. Yep. How, how did that go? I think the, the idea was uh, those two algorithms are partly suited for robotics. And um, looking at what was in uh, the repo, it did not correspond to the latest algorithm that seemed to work based. And... I think I needed ACC for uh, one of my side projects, and I, I wanted to yeah to have it at some point. And it seems to be uh, both a stable and working algorithm, and uh, that people were using it, and it was actually working on real robots. So uh, I thought it was a good idea to to add it. And the way it went um, was well, mostly looking, reading the paper, lots of time, then reading the different implementation, um, especially the original implementation, and then um, having it proof-tested using uh, the zoo, so uh, making it work on all uh, the environment and especially the others one. And once it's working on the others one, then you're pretty sure that uh, this should work. And I think in the future we'd like to also add more, but usually I would prefer to uh, wait and not um, implement all the new algorithm, but wait and see what uh, is staying there. And SAC and TD3 were the two algorithms that were actually used by the community and apparently actually working. Have you guys chatted with OpenAI much about this fork? Yeah, I think we, we made a pull request. Uh, I believe it was a month after we got uh, to this very nice refactored Escalon user-friendly interface that we were targeting. And uh, OpenAI took a while to answer us and after a while said they were interested to integrating it into their main code base. And um, in exchange, we said, okay, but we would like you to be a bit more open about your issues and your roadmap and, you know, take proper into consideration, into proper consideration, uh, all the problems that a lot of users, except uh, besides us, sorry, that um, had. 
And their answer after a few months, I think, was, uh, we would like to integrate these changes. However, they are no longer compatible with our roadmap. Uh, so I think they declined our pull request. Uh, it's a bit more complicated. They, I think they, they, they said at some point, we, we will come back to you, and they never came back. Uh, I think the last message. The, the pull request is a number uh, 481. <laughs> I just found it again. We can, yeah, we discussed with them, but at the end, uh, there was no input from them anymore. So I think it's uh, not possible anyway. We kind of diverge. But at, at first, it, it was uh, it was a bit weird because we did the pull request and we had to wait two months before uh, having a comment. I think you have at least some fans inside OpenAI. I was at Last Europe's in Montreal, and I, I heard an OpenAI researcher say some nice things about stable baselines. Um, it was just banter, and so maybe take it with some salt, but um, in chatting afterwards, they said stable baselines was the better baselines. Oh. <laughs> wow. So I think you have some fans in there. Okay. Good to know. Good to know, then. <laughs> what do you see as the future of uh, stable baselines? Um, I personally see it as being uh, not the best day open, uh, not the best reinforcement learning uh, library, but being a like Escala and being a very user-friendly, very open library where people can just come up and plug their stuff in and get it up and running properly. Afterwards, what we want to be done is we would like it to go towards TensorFlow 2.0. I want to add some more uh, genetic algorithms, uh, those kind of things, and I would also like to add better parallelization. Okay, and when you say better parallelization, do you mean in terms of having multiple environments running or multiple GPUs? What are we talking about here? Um, it's uh, an issue that uh, crops up very sudden, or it crops up very often in uh, Python programming. Uh, Python doesn't handle parallelization very well at all because of the uh, the jail. So, so the idea would be to maybe add threading or try and optimize the parallelization by batching it. So CPU parallelization mostly, because that seems to be the bottleneck at the moment on the library. And and again, that is that um, the CPU running environments? Uh, yes, sorry. Yeah, the, the next big step would be TensorFlow 2, and I'm still wondering about uh, creating a PyTorch version, so um, having the same API, but with PyTorch as a backend, because since the beginning, using TensorFlow has always been a bit of a problem, and... We use TensorFlow because of legacy reason, not because of our choice, personal choice. So um, there's one point, and uh, the other point is because we didn't start from scratch, then there are some legacy things that are still there that are hard to uh, change without breaking the code. So I may try at some point also to have Python version, but keeping the same API and things yeah and in the future we already have kind of a roadmap and um, feature we would like to add and people can contribute to that they they can directly lo look at the the roadmap on the on the repo and last thing i mean there's a lot of reinforcement learn learning library uh, up there and i i see us yeah really like something that is easy to use but that's not really meant for uh, changing the algorithm we we provide uh uh, self-contained implementation that are not so modular that are uh, compared to other library, but you can directly look at the code, understand how the algorithm work, and we provide also yeah documentation on how to use it. That's where we are, I think, compared to others. Future, the big next step is uh, TensorFlow 2, and um, 
adding some uh, feature, nice feature. Like there's a lot of thing about evaluating reinforcement learning algorithm that I would like also to add to the library. So I've to, to make uh, research more reproducible. If you have a standard way of evaluating an uh, algorithm, if you provide a function to do that, then yeah, it could be a good idea for me also. In terms of this library, I loved how clear everything was and I could actually look back all the way from the, the, the line that calls the algorithm uh, down into all the implementation details so we could understand if we wanted to change anything, where the change needed to be made. By comparison, looking at RLlib, uh, the abstractions were so deep that I, I, it was, it was, I found it difficult to work with. Um, so there's definitely pro, got to be pros and cons. What do you guys want to comment on other other libraries, other other libraries you like in this space? Um, actually, I, I really like uh, RL Coach. The, the code of RL Coach is really good. Um, if you want to just learn about the algorithm on how they are implemented, because it's document uh, the code is is well written and documented. So I really, I really like RL Coach for that. Um, there another recent one I, I've seen. Uh, I didn't have the time to try it, but that is called Catalyst. But Catalyst seems like more, much uh, more like doing also deep uh, learning, not only reinforcement learning, uh, but which is a lot much more modular. So you can try new uh, to combine um, improvement from different algorithms, but then that make it, make it harder if you want to... Uh, know how an algorithm works because you have to uh, search into all the different models but that may be good for um, trying to combine improvement from different algorithms tensorflow agents yeah it's relative i haven't had the time to go too deep into it but it uh, looks relatively uh, easy to use and pretty uh, modular on its uh, interface and so it doesn't really need a gym to interface with um, environments yeah, the, the the only thing up to now that I didn't found was a good documentation as we have in Stable Design. I've tried. They have mostly uh, tutorials and IPython notebook on how to use things, but uh, I couldn't find yeah a good documentation as I I would have expected for now. So I hope that will they will also improve on that. It seems like early days for TF agents. You both co-authored a paper titled "Decoupling Feature Extraction from Policy Learning." Assessing Benefits of State Representation Learning in Goal-Based Robotics, and that was uh, in the beginning of this year. Could you tell us the main idea with this paper? Yeah, okay. So this paper is kind of the uh, summary of, of one year of research about uh, state representation learning. So state representation learning is about how do you extract uh, relevant information? How do you extract compact representation from your input data? And uh, for instance, from... Uh, an image, if you have uh, an image from a robot, uh, only extract uh, relevant information from the image. And the idea is also, if you do that, then uh, you don't need to relearn the feature extractor each time you want to apply reinforcement learning. You can reuse the same uh, representation. And uh, the other thing is it's uh, compact, so you can use a much different algorithm like evolution strategy. And it's also uh, usually interpretable so you can uh, directly understand why your feature extraction is working or not, or what is your uh, agent having as input. So if I understand this correctly, are the rep representations learned completely separately from the RL, and are they learned in advance or at the same time? 
They are learnt uh, in advance from the environment, where we sample uh, pictures from the environment, get a sufficient data set, and then learn from that uh, in an unsupervised manner. So this paper looks at specific types of rep uh, representation learning, including what are called uh, robotic priors. Can, can you help us understand what are robotic priors? It almost seems like that phrase could be capitalized. Okay, so th the idea of uh, robotic priors was um, to have... So in order to learn the representation, you can have you have some prior knowledge on how a good representation should look like, and this was a work a work from uh, Rico Jankowski from uh, RBO Lab in Berlin, and also um, Professor Brock. And the idea is you have some knowledge about how the word the the word works and how a good representation should look like for a robot and. You encode that as losses, and that way you can uh, directly learn from, from the data. So, for instance, you have a prior that is telling you that um, it's a prior, prior of smoothness that is telling you that things doesn't teleport. So, from one instant to the next, things uh, should uh, change only smoothly. That's one example of a prior. And our work was also mainly focused on... Uh, applying reinforcement learning for robotics so our methods were uh, always robotics in mind so do these uh, types of priors uh usually or always apply in the real world uh, like are there cases where robot these these priors don't fully apply mm, yeah f well those priors are quite uh, restrictive so there's uh one simple case where they are viol violated is for instance for collision i think one of the prior is uh, violated by that and this was um interesting idea for um, extracting information from the input but in practice uh, you can uh, have a much simpler uh, loss a much simpler objective than all those different priors uh, for learning a representation so you touched on this a bit already but um, what kinds of things do you consider when you're choosing between different methods of state representation learning and and, and how do you select the best one um, I think the, um, mainly our, our main concern was reinforcement learning performance and being able to learn a good policy from that representation. That was our first measurement. And then we developed, I believe, a few other measurements in order to verify the correlation, for example, with uh, the ground truth. So what was our real robot position? And we wanted to see how that correlated to our learned state and uh, things like that. And well, if you want to apply uh, state representation to re learning to a new task, it depends on... Um, what what do you want to learn, uh, for instance, and onto what data data do you have access? For instance, if you have access to only two images, then using a autoencoder is pretty straightforward and usually work fine, unless your um, objects are not uh, salient in the uh, image, for instance. And if you have access to more data, for instance, if you want to learn uh, what is controllable, then then usually you should use. Um, an invest dynamic loss where uh, you will extract what you can control. Yeah, it, it usually depends on um, what type of data do you have access to and uh, how does the data look like also. So are we, is the goal here to ensure that state representation learning learns enough to enable um, the policies and goals that we have right now? Or are we, are we trying to come up with representation learnings that are sufficient to enable all the future policies and goals that we may ever have? Is that a different question? Or is that the same thing? Uh, I think that's that's related because uh, you can have um, state representation that are uh, 
dedicated to only one task. Uh, for instance, if you have the reward information and you have also set representation that are only uh, related to uh, that are relevant for several tasks in the same environment. So, Anton, you do you use state representation learning in your work? And can you can you talk a little bit about how you use it in your work? It's not directly state representation learning. Uh, it's mostly dimension reduction. Um, so it's it's a way to well, so in my work for uh, nonlinear normal modes, which are extension of uh, linear modes. Uh, there's a characterization that say that the system can be described with only one variable, um, and the way to uh, find that mode is then to um, to train a noto encoder that will find the transformation to the uh, to the mode manifold, and this is how it is done. So this can be seen as state representation learning, but I see that more as dimension reduction uh, in that case. But I've been using state representation learning more for a side project. For instance, with a, a robotic car, where I try to learn a useful feature to apply uh, RL in the real world. How did that work out? Um, for now, it's just simple autoencoder because uh, I don't have much uh, data, but I would like to try other, uh, other type of... Uh, of features afterwards. Ashley, do you want to comment on this? Like, do you use uh, SRL in, in the work that you do? Um, I don't use it in my work, unfortunately, because my dimension space is relatively small and I already have access to the ground truth information in my task. But uh, it's something I would like to use in the future because it tends to speed up. Uh, in what we tried during, my, during uh, the paper, it tended to increase performance uh, drastically on the uh, training time. So I noticed at least two papers on state representation learning were accepted for NeurIPS this year. And maybe there's many more, but I just noticed these two. Dynamics Aware Embeddings uh, by Whitney and et al. And Unsupervised State Representation Learning on Atari by Anand et al. Um, I wonder, do you guys have any thoughts about the future of, of SRL and um, where it's going? Um, I see it more as it being... Uh an extra tool in the tool belt of reinforcement learning uh, developers because it's um, it tends to be uh, to outperform end-to-end learning so when you have a policy with a convolutional neural network it is very hard to find uh, a good policy quickly in using that but if you have a state representation learn uh, a learned state representation then you can quickly infer many policies for that task quickly much faster than you would just by learning it uh, through the convolutional neural network so I see it more as an extra tool. I found it really relevant for everything that is robotics because you cannot simulate uh, like you do for Atari or any games or simulation. You usually have only one robot and here you need to be uh, sample efficient. And by decoupling that uh, feature extraction from policy learning, um, you usually speed up uh, learning, even though you will have a bit... Um, if, if you don't extract all the relevant information, you will have a small drop in performance. But still, usually in robotics, you want to have a good enough policy. You don't want the best one. You want to the one that you can find quickly that works that was good enough for your task. So I I still find it relevant for uh, especially robotics. You both authored the robotics RL SRL repo on GitHub. Can you tell us a bit about that repo? The SRL toolbox uh, is. I think it was mainly designed so we could uh, benchmark loads of different SRL tools and we coupled it with stable baselines. So we had access to all these reinforcement learning uh, tools. We could hot swap 
all the uh, RL algorithms and hot swap all the uh, state representation learning algorithms and try and mix and, mix and match and see what worked well. That was the main goal of that repository so that other users could also maybe try and uh, see what uh, could work uh, with state representation learning. Yeah, the, the main idea was at first it started with only state representation learning, um, how to combine them, how to evaluate them. We added tools to uh, debug, visualize, uh, assess the quality of the different representation. And at some point we needed to uh, evaluate in the RL setting, so we started adding different baseline. And that was the ancestor of a stable baseline, in fact, because we, we started doing the unification in that repo and, and then we... Uh, we put it everything that we fixed and that we have done uh, here in that repo to stable baseline. In fact, at at the end. So, um, and yeah, the the idea is to provide uh, tools uh, to try new things to compare uh, that um, SRL methods. And uh, yeah, I've been in fact I've been using those tools on other projects. So the tool for visualization. For exploring the latent space of an autoencoder of, of, of learn representation, we had some tools for that, and we added also some uh, metrics for assessing the quality, knowing the ground truth. Uh, this is mainly what this, this repo is about, and it was yeah also one almost one year of work with uh, also um, Rodé and Natalia. What do you find interesting these days in the RL space? I've been keeping up with RL, uh, in fact, and going a bit more into the model-based uh, RL because I, my, my goal is still to, um, to bridge the gap between uh, what uh, RL working in simulation and RL working in the real world. So having sample efficient reinforcement learning and also having uh, actually working algorithm, not algorithm that only works on particular environment in simulation. I don't know. One of the trends... Um, a bit afraid of is people using it only on games or only on in simulation and I prefer always when you have um, experiment with real robots for instance the uh, soft actor critic paper they have this soft actor critic and application where they show that it actually works in on different robots in different settings and this was quite interesting and on the other hand um, I'm for m I'm more in the direction of adding prior knowledge to the method. So you have some knowledge about your task. You have some knowledge about how things, how things work, how, how you should do solve the task. And uh, recently there was a paper, so tossing bot, where they uh, art coded almost everything and only learn when, what cannot be modeled. But, uh, and it actually works directly in the real world. And I would, yeah, I think things would be better that way. So, um, not learning everything from scratch because some it just doesn't make sense to start from from scratch always, uh, especially if you have no, some knowledge that you can uh, incorporate. I noticed that most frameworks really focus on the model-free RL, and yet uh, model-based RL seems to be the key for sample efficiency. I wonder when we're going to see more flexible toolkits for model-based RL. Yes, um, yeah, I'm also waiting for that, and I may, I may also work on that if there's nothing. But uh, the main problem with model-based is apparently it only works for now in very simple settings, and they are harder to implement, they are slower to uh, train, slower to, um, to make 
it works. So I think that's why now it's not really used or it's there's not so much implementation available. Or I would expect uh, more on that. So I think recently there was a big benchmark on the different model based method, and there are still uh, far from model free uh, method when you look at the asymptotic performance. And I, I think uh, the, the main problem is when it uh, starts hacking the model, so when it starts using the overestimation of the model. And yeah, I, I discussed that a bit with a PhD student at uh, TU Darmstadt, and that was quite interesting that it's still... The, the thing is model-free, they are much more model-free because they are easier to implement and they they just work for now. So I think that's, that's why you don't have the stable baseline for model-based error yet but i would like that to to happen also so actually you had some comments uh against rl do you want to share those with us yeah um there's a lot of situations i've seen uh, in the recent years where people are tending to want to run reinforcement learning in end-to-end settings removing any construction from, from the control loop for example uh, i've seen situations where people would take uh, the input of a camera and expect to directly control a car uh, or would directly and just bypass a hundred plus years of Kalman filters of of uh, advanced controllers and all these things and proof of convergences and things like this. And I think that's not the right solution. I think reinforcement learning has a very important role, a role uh, specifically in planning and um, and task management and things like that. But when it comes to low level control and and uh, feature extractions, these are things that come hand in hand with with neural networks. I tend to find, and they're not things that DeepRL should be concerning too much about. I think it's that it strength lays more in planning and in uh, those kind of things. So it seems a, a little bit naive to just throw something really hard and say, "Oh, DeepRL will just figure that out." Like, why? Why do you think that people are are trying to do that? Is it just um, ignorance of the of other methods, or or some kind of um, magical beliefs about the the capabilities of these systems? Um, no, I'm actually glad that in some respects that they're doing this because they're testing in some ways the limitations of uh, deep reinforcement learning. They're testing the boundaries before actually seeing where this can be applied properly by tr- by checking exactly what you can remove and see if the system still works. In some sense, they're, they're really seeing how far can I push this method until it breaks. So I'm glad they're doing it in some respects, but I don't appreciate the idea of throwing massive amounts of computing power to a problem with the deep RL and say, oh, it's fine, it will work. Yeah, and usually this successful uh, application, like the deep mimic paper, you still have a low-level PD controller that is uh, doing also the work of controlling the position. So usually having a combination of the two is needed. Yeah. A, a trend lately where you know at least some organizations are going for really big RL uh, compute uh, projects. And then that means that many other organizations cannot reproduce their results or, um, or compete in that area. Um, do you think that's something we need to be concerned about, or is that just um, is that a temporary thing? Is that a long term trend? Um, I don't like personally the. Um, I think it was. I can't remember the the name. It was the latest uh, language uh, generation model that uh, OpenAI released. Uh, GPT it came out, and I remember them saying uh, that they poured tons of hours of Reddit uh, conversations down into this algorithm with tons of computing machines, and they were hesitant to release it because of the damage it could do, because no one actually had the computing power to be able to d- 
detect this system because it's such uh, it, they've just threw so much power at it that you couldn't do anything against it. And I found that um, it's not only unfair, I think, towards the uh, other developers, but it has to be done. So I'm glad uh, it's being done personally. I mean, there's not. I, on, on the other hand, compute costs are falling quickly, and so I, I recall the uh, behavior suites from DeepMind. Um, I think they 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 wrote somewhere in the paper that the these results could be replicated with a very small number of dollars um, on cloud. I think it was something like on the order of two digits of dollars uh, on the cloud. So so maybe the the simple trend is these large organizations will have access to big compute just a little bit sooner than we do. Maybe it's as simple as that. Hopefully it's that. Uh, what I don't want to see, what I would like to see in papers uh, personally would be the uh, the uh, the joule cost of actually training it. I would honestly <laughs> enjoy to see how many joules it took to actually train this model uh, just from an energy standpoint because I'm not sure if we all start doing this if we have enough power. <laughs> yeah, joules and also uh, c- carbon emissions, right? Yes, yeah, exactly. Like I wonder, I've always wondered how much carbon Alpha Zero or Alpha Go took to train, or or Dota, Dota oh, Two. Yeah. I think is the, is, B- better not um, ask. <laughs> well, yeah, and we can and we can shuffle the accounting by trying to go for green power. But at the end of the day, we all need to share this the the power that we have. Uh, so it's kind of more of an accounting trick to use, um, you know, to offsets and all that. Yeah. I would just like to see some acknowledgement of what it took, not necessarily any repercussions or anything, just how much energy did it genuinely take you to do this? Even for a scale point of view, for uh, it's important to know that. Antonin and Ashley, I so appreciate you uh, being here uh, with me today. I look forward to chatting with you for for many months. And um, it's, it's, it's a small dream come true for me. Um, thanks so much for sharing uh, your work openly. Um, I, I, I love stable baselines and I, I've read your paper with fascination. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your insight with us all today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. It's been a pleasure. That's our episode for today, folks. Be sure to check talkrl.com for more great episodes. 